Welcome to CityGraceNY.com. Thank you for listening to this message recorded live at City Grace Church. So if you've joined us um, the last couple of weeks at City Grace, we've been going through a series on Advent, and we've been looking at different themes orienting around the birth of Jesus, particularly the themes of hope, love, joy, peace, and then finally tonight on, on Christ himself. And as we look at this, this theme of, of Christ here in Matthew chapter 2, we see that you might say that the birth of Christ was, was a birth that was really fit for a king, a birth that was fit for a king. And as we go through Matthew chapter 2, we're going to see t- basically just, just two observations. It's going to be um, a short abbreviated sermon so that you guys have enough time for desserts after. But just two observations, and the two observations are that there's, there's a place that's fit for a king, and then also that there are gifts that are fit for a king. A place that's fit for a king, and then also gifts that are fit for a king. So firstly, the, the place, Bethlehem, um, is probably most well known for it being the birthplace of Jesus. So if you've read the Bible, Bethlehem, as the birthplace of Jesus, is pretty much known as that. But if you read the Bible from front to back, you, you realize that Bethlehem doesn't show up for the first time in the Gospels. But that actually, Bethlehem is actually a pretty significant place, not just in the New Testament, but the, in the Old Testament as well. So in, in 2011, I actually went on a trip to Israel and, and got to visit Bethlehem. Bethlehem today is obviously a, a vastly different place than it was back in the day. But the most, the, the most famous site there in Bethlehem is called the Church of the Nativity. And the Church of the Nativity is basically the, the site on which most archaeologists and scholars really feel that the birth of Jesus actually took place there or at least very, very close to that location. So they established a church in kind of memory of Jesus' birthplace. And so that is really one of the most popular tourist sites in all of Israel and especially in Bethlehem. But while I was there in, in Bethlehem, it was there was, uh, I guess, a, a feeling of different feelings. So it, on the one hand, it was very enlightening to see what actually Bethlehem was in, in 2011, a couple of years ago. But there, there was one part that kind of made me a little bit uncomfortable, which was that there were a number of, of tourists that were there, and the tourists went, went down into the church, and there's different sites in which they think that um, Jesus could have been born, what a manger looked like, things like that. But there were a number of tourists that, that were there, and what they what they liked to do was they, they brought certain items and they brought some of the items to these, to these particular historic areas within the church. And what made me a little bit uncomfortable was just the fact that they took some of like their own possessions and for some reason they, they started like rubbing their possessions on the different kind of artifacts or places within the church. I didn't actually talk to anyone who's actually doing it, but, but I assume that a lot of people came to Bethlehem thinking that there was like maybe a, a supernatural presence still there since the fact that Jesus himself was very likely there, was very likely born there. And so they really felt that, okay, if I, if I go there myself or I bring certain of my own possessions in life and I kind of just get close to the presence, then perhaps there might be an abundance of, of blessings that go on and on and on. So that made me a little uncomfortable because... In, in a sense, 
it's almost uh, objectifying what you might say that the presence of Jesus is in just wanting to reap the benefits of getting close to where actually Jesus might have been born. But then on the other hand, there is something to the fact that Bethlehem itself is a very particular and special place according to the Bible. So once again, Bethlehem as a place, it doesn't just show up in the New Testament, but it also shows up in the Old Testament. And we see that actually God chooses Bethlehem to actually be a very, very special place. So although we might not say that today it has some sort of supernatural presence, Bethlehem itself is actually very important from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And one of the first places that Bethlehem shows up in the Bible There's a couple of places that show up before this, but one of the most significant places that it shows up in the Old Testament is in the book of Ruth. So if you recall in the book of Ruth, we we see the story of Naomi and we see the story of Naomi and how she gets into a, a very difficult situation when her husband passes away, when her her sons pass away and she only has her her daughter in laws to help support her. She's in this very, very difficult situation. Um, basically no means of, of financial support. And eventually she, she ends up going back to her home place and at her home location is when she's able to find what the Bible calls the kinsman redeemer or basically Boaz as the man is able to redeem Naomi's situation. The question is, where does that story of redemption take place? Where is Naomi's human need actually met? And the answer, of course, is it's in Bethlehem. So already from the Old Testament, God is establishing this special place, Bethlehem, as a place in which he particularly chooses to meet the needs of his people. So that happens in the book of Ruth. But that also another example of this happens with King David, because if you recall the book um, in First First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, as well as some of the other historical books, we see the story of King David and how the Israelite people they needed a leader. There was a very dark time, particularly um, when the nation was led by King Saul, and so what we see is that the people of God were in desperate need for a new leader. They were looking for a new leader. They needed a more holy and godly leader. And as as you may know, that when King David presents himself, he presents himself where else but in the town of Bethlehem. So once again, we see God choosing this particular place, Bethlehem, as the place in which God shows up. God brings about a new story of redemption not just anywhere, but particularly in the town of Bethlehem. So when we finally come to the New Testament and we, we see in the Gospel of Matthew, we see the genealogy that Matthew is trying to describe, trying to connect Jesus to the Old Testament, we see that God is trying to write a new story of redemption because the place in which Jesus is born is the very place that God has already chosen to reveal himself in new ways and to meet the needs of his people. So in the New Testament, we see that Jesus himself is the answer to a far greater problem than any of the previous problems before. So whereas 
Naomi had the problem of having her personal life and her family life redeemed, that, that's a big problem. Then we have a bigger problem, which, which is the nation of Israel is leaderless. What happens? God provides the leader. So in the New Testament, we see a climax, the climax of the story, which is that all of humanity becomes the story in which a new leader is needed, a new leader to lead the people of God into the promised land, which is why it's important that the prophet Micah announces that this Savior is going to be born in Bethlehem. Because for, for any reader of the Bible back then, as soon as you hear the words Bethlehem, it's immediately associated with redemption, with, people, with God meeting the needs of his people in this particular location. So Jesus, the king of the world, right, he comes in the most unlikeliest of places because Bethlehem at the time was really only known for one thing, which is bread. Bethlehem, the word itself means the house of bread. There's really nothing else there. It's a small town, pretty obscure. Not too many people are interested in it, except God. God is keenly interested in the most unlikeliest of places. You and I, we, we tend to think that the best things come from the best places. So if you want one of the best leaders, probably you're going to find those leaders coming out from Harvard or Yale. Or if you're looking for the best CEO, you'll probably look for it in Google or Facebook or Amazon. Right? The typical notion is that the best things come out of the best places. And yet the birth story of Jesus tells us quite the opposite. That Jesus and God chooses the most unlikeliest of places to bring out the best people from the worst places. The best people from the most unlikeliest of places. So God choosing Bethlehem is just another reinforcement of the humility of Jesus, of Jesus being born in the most unlikeliest of places, in the most humble of circumstances, in the place that you would not expect to be fit for a king. And yet, in Matthew chapter 2, it's very clear that actually God chooses Bethlehem as the exact place that completely is fit for a king. About um, three months ago, when, when Megan was about to give birth with Eden, we, we rushed to the hospital. And as soon as we get to the hospital, we find out, of course, that there's no rooms. So we have to uh, labor together for the first couple of hours in the best place that you would expect, a hallway. Hours and hours in the hallway. Megan was so out of it, she thought we were in triage. She didn't know, she didn't know what was going on. And at the time, we thought that she was really quite far along, that we thought she was, the baby was going to pop out in the hallway. Now, luckily, we were wrong. She wasn't as far along as, as, we, thought we, as we thought we were. But at the, at the very least, we thought that this would be like the absolute worst place to have a baby, like in a hallway. Not to mention there was a couple sitting on the other side of the curtain who, for some reason, wanted to keep peeking in to see what was going on on our side of the curtain. <laughs> So clearly, not the best place to have a baby. And yet, clearly, in the scriptures, we see that Jesus was born in far worse circumstances than the hallway of a hospital. 
in far worse circumstances, in far poorer circumstances, not even wealthy enough to be in the equivalent of a hospital. And yet at the same time, we see that God chooses Bethlehem to be this place that is exactly fit for a king. Just not the kind of king that we're expecting. So Bethlehem is the place fit for a king. And we also see that in Bethlehem, in this place that is fit for a king, we also see that there are gifts that are fit for a king. According to um, a recent poll by Gallup, looking at 2019, this, this Christmas season, they reported that consumers anticipate spending an average of $942 on Christmas gifts this year. And ap- apparently this is up from $885 um, in 2018. And along with consumers' record high average spending estimate, the new poll finds that 37% of Americans say that they will spend $1,000 or more on Christmas presents this year. 37% of Americans say they will spend over $1,000 on Christmas presents this year. Now, perhaps no one here would be spending $1,000 on Christmas presents this year. Wink, wink. But at the very least, we spend you know hours and hours and perhaps hundreds of dollars on our own Christmas presents, either giving Christmas presents or or receiving Christmas presents. So the question is, what kind of gifts would be fit for a king? How much energy, how much effort can we put in to giving gifts, not just to each other, but to Jesus himself? In Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, we, we read about the gifts that he receives It says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So firstly, if you've read this story before, um, you may be familiar with the song, We Three Kings. So often it's it's, uh, mentioned that there were probably three wise men, although that's not actually mentioned. We actually don't know how many wise men there were. Some people just think it would be three simply because there were three gifts. But regardless of that fact that there were clearly, these these men were clearly wise in the sense of most likely they were pagan astrologers, people who studied the stars and, and knew what the stars kind of meant in terms of news coming and in terms of direction of where to go. So these pagan astrologers brought these gifts Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And just a couple of quick observations for for each of these gifts, which is that gold is probably the most obvious gift. Gold has always resembled royalty. So clearly these pagan astrologers, even though they were traveling very, very far from very far to find Jesus, they knew who they were going to. So one of the most important observations in thinking about what does it mean for for these magi or for these wise men to come to Jesus is that very clearly these wise men were not believing in the covenant God Yahweh. They were pagan astrologers. And what that means is that even, even the pagan astrologers traveled 
far and wide to find this baby Jesus and recognized him as a king. So not just believers, not just Christians, not just people who followed Yahweh at the time, but even the most pagan of people. The people who had no associations with the covenant God recognized who Jesus was, which is why they bring, they bring gold. So in thinking about this practically for ourselves, if, if we're saying that Jesus is king, then in a sense we're saying he's, he has a right to rule. He has a right to rule over all of creation. He has a right to rule over our own individual lives. So in thinking about what does it mean for us or for you to give a gift to Jesus, we might think of what, what area of our lives have we kind of cordoned off to, to prevent God from ruling? Is there any part of our life in which we say, this is off limits? Obviously, if, if, if we are Christian, we, we come to church on Sunday. So, so Sundays is obviously the day of worship, the day in which we, we really meet God. But what happens on Monday through Saturday? Are there any days in which we say, like, God, this is, this is off limits. Like, this is, this is my time. So if we're to think about what does it mean to give a gift like gold to resemble the royalty of Jesus, we might think about in, in what ways am I stopping Jesus from, being, from becoming king in my, of my life? In what area? Uh, maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your personal relationships. Maybe it's how you spend your money. All these different areas of our life in which we are asked to bring the lordship and the kingship of Jesus into our life. Secondly, frankincense. Uh, frankincense is apparently obtained from a tree, making incisions in a tree, and then out of the bark come this, res this resin, which is frankincense, which is an aromatic smell and is actually quite medicinal. So there are, there are actually a number of uses for frankincense, but frankincense primarily in the Old Testament was a pleasing aroma to God. So it was often used in the offerings presented to God. So a gift of frankincense to Jesus meant that Jesus himself was going to become a pleasing offering to God. So thinking about f for our own life, right, the question is, do our lives become an aroma of Christ to the people around us? whether it's to our family members or to our friends, can people, perhaps not by asking specific questions, but how we live our life, the manner in which we live, how much love we have for one another, how much time we spend with one another, the type, the type of gifts we give to one another. In the Bible, it talks about how Christians are the aroma of Christ, right? meaning we give off a smell, the question is, what kind of smell do we give off? And we're not talking about B.O. We're talking about smelling like Christ, resembling Christ, not just in how we look, but, but how we smell. And smells, are they're, they're often harder to discern. Right? Sometimes we're, we're in the house, like, what's that smell? 
just just today, uh, Eli got a sniff of something. Apparently, it was the pizza cardboard box on fire, <laughs> Le- left near the stove. These these smells, it, it takes time to discern what a smell is and what a smell is not. And so we see in the scriptures that that's actually very similar to the Christian life, which is the Christian life, sometimes people can't tell why you're doing what you're doing. So in some instances, you might have to explain that the gospel is encouraging you or us to live in a certain way to make it clear what the gospel is saying. But regardless, people can can get a whiff of what we're doing by how we're acting, which is what frankincense is about. And lastly, myrrh. Myrrh is the last gift, and myrrh was actually more precious than gold per ounce. And myrrh, in addition to being very precious itself, was also used for embalming, for embalming the dead. So we see that the gift of myrrh, although you, it might be kind of strange to, to give that to a, to a baby, it kind of had uh, two sides to it, which is it, it was actually very precious and it was actually used to embalm the dead, to anoint the dead. So this is why in uh, John chapter 19, verse 39, when Jesus is on the cross, they prepare his body for burial with a mixture of myrrh and also aloes. So the myrrh itself was actually a foreshadowing later of what Jesus would have to do, which was Jesus had to be dishonored on the cross and then eventually prepared for burial with the myrrh. So in talking about the gift of myrrh, we, we can actually see that the gospel itself always includes death. So when we look at the gospel, we realize that death is not just a one-time thing that happens at the end of life, but actually death is part of the rhythm of the gospel. Romans chapter 6, verse 5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we see the rhythm of the gospel being death, resurrection. Death, resurrection. Again and again and again. That death is not just something that happens at the end and then Christians go to heaven, but death is a regular rhythm of what it means to be a Christian. So the question is, in offering a gift like that to, to Jesus, the question is, what can we put to death that, God, that Jesus is asking us to put to death? And that sounds like a very morbid thought, especially for Christmas Eve. But we see very clearly that death and resurrection is just a natural part of being a Christian. We want to make it to be the, the exception to the rule, but it's actually the rule itself. So that gold, frankincense, and myrrh are the types of gifts that we can actually give to Jesus. Because on the one hand, we might say that what, what gift could you possibly give to Jesus that would honor Jesus as Jesus? And the answer is only gifts that would be fitting for a king. That Bethlehem was the place in which God chose would be fit for a king. But then gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh would be the types of gifts that we could present to Jesus that would be fitting for a king. 
So in thinking about this, we, we, we see that obviously God is not calling us to give oftentimes physical gifts to Jesus, but that ultimately the types of gifts that God requires is obedience and sacrifice. Obedience and sacrifice in terms of recognizing that Jesus is king, recognizing that our, our lives give off an aroma to others, and then lastly, dying to self, dying to the things that we need to die to so that Jesus can bring about a resurrection that we never expect, that Jesus is able to bring new life out of dead situations, that Jesus is able to bring new life, particularly out of Bethlehem, because God chooses Bethlehem to bring out this new story of redemption, this new king in which Jesus not only becomes a gift for us, but also that we can begin to give ourselves back as a gift to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your story of, of redemption and how you, you make the most difficult of circumstances into a, a circumstance that brings out new life and new hope. God, we pray that this Christmas Eve that you would give us a greater sense of hope, a greater sense of joy, a greater sense of love, and a greater sense of peace. God, when we look at your scriptures, it, it often boggles us and confuses us to think that not only were you willing to be born a human, but you were willing to be born into the, into the lowliest of conditions into the poorest of conditions. And any other king would have come with, a, with great fanfare and a royal entourage. But for some reason, you came into our world in utter weakness. And at the same time, that was your choice. That was your plan. And that's your gospel. So God, we thank you and we praise you that you were willing to become humble so God, may we offer our humble lives as a gift back to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.